Okay, we begin a new study together this evening in the book of Deuteronomy, if you'll join me there. Starting another book here in the Old Testament, the fifth book in what is often called the Pentateuch, referring to the first five books that we have uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy, basically the term there, it comes uh, from the Septuagint version, uh, basically just the word Deutero and Nomi or Deuteronomy, basically a compound word, basically in essence conveys the idea of the second law. Now, uh, by saying that, please don't misunderstand, it's not saying this is now a second version of the law or another law prior to the first law that was already given to us uh, through Moses by God speaking to him. But in essence, what this is, is this is a restating of the law. This is a, a second pass through, if you would. This is the Holy Spirit directing Moses now in the last few days of his earthly life before he departs and goes to be with the Lord and the children of Israel now on the border of the promised land will enter into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. Uh, really, this is sort of a, a, a restating of the law for the younger generation. Again, the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chronologically, as far as time frame covers somewhere, I think it's fair to say between a 30 to 40 day period, about a month's time frame. Some say 37 days. I don't know if we can exactly be accurate, but, but about a month's time frame is what's encompassed in this book here that we have as really what we get here in the book of Deuteronomy, it's almost, I guess you could call it a refresher course. Uh, you'll notice that as we go through it, if you've read through it or you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, that a lot of what we find here uh, are things that are reiterated from Leviticus and Numbers. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that, oh, great, they're going to have to go through that boring <laughs> type stuff again. That, that's not the case. This is a restating of the law, but not in verbatim. This isn't just rote repetition. This isn't just the Holy Spirit through Moses restating the exact same things that were given to us in the book of Numbers and in the book of Leviticus and aspects of some of the things from Exodus, but what this is is the restating of the law by Moses interspersed with encouragements to obey the word of God, interspersed with warnings to obey the word of God, uh, and Moses is now giving this refresher course to the younger generation, sort of as I look at it as almost like the graduation speech before they now enter into this next stage of their uh, spiritual journey as they now prepare to depart from the school of the wilderness and to enter into the next level of spiritual growth and education as they enter into the promised land and enter into a new season of their lives spiritually. This is sort of Moses' farewell address. And whenever you have a really good, godly leader, whenever you have even just you know a godly person, a great man, a great woman, and they're about to die or depart uh, from this earth and they've had a good run at it uh, there's something really valuable about people's last words you know maybe if you were with a, a parent before they passed away or just somebody you really loved or admired and respected and they said hey just let, let's get together and, it, and it's almost that kind of thing where you realize man sometimes the final words the last words that somebody had to say can really be some really gargantuan uh, massive important things and, and that's what this is this is Moses at this time he's 120 years old uh, this is an individual who's had a long 
journey, a long relationship with God. God has spoken to him, the Bible says, treated him like a friend, speaking face to face in a very direct way. Moses has had access to God's presence. He's heard from God directly. And this man of massive spirituality now has before him this younger generation. The older generation has died off over the 40-year wandering in the wilderness, and they're now on the edge of the land. They're about a month before Joshua assumes the leadership and takes them in. And Moses now really just pours into them one last time. And in essence, this is somewhat of a a series of of youth sermons. As Moses, this 120-year-old, very wise, godly man, looks at these younger uh, pups, if you would, spiritually, and he says, look, let me share some things with you that are critical because I'm about to go and be with the Lord uh, and you're the younger generation and I don't want to see you get burnt and waste your lives and miss opportunities and live foolishly and repeat the mistakes of your fathers or live the same experiences and get battle scars and regrets. I want to see you do well. I want to see you serve the Lord and be faithful and follow God. And you know, really what the book of Deuteronomy is, it really is a, a series of sermons that Moses now gives to the younger generation as a farewell address to prepare them, to equip them, to restate and make sure they understand the history of their forefathers and what God has done over the past number of years. Again, keep in mind, many of them were young initially when the law was being given through Exodus and the times of Leviticus and Numbers. So uh, Moses wants to make sure they're fully equipped that they're well prepared, that they understand these things. So he's reiterating these things now as a refresher course. And it's almost as if you can hear Moses saying, now let's go over this one more time. You know, if you've had kids, you've kind of you had to do that. You Maybe you're leaving them an instruction or you're going to leave them home for the first time or something. Or you're just trying to you explain it. But let, let, let's just go over this one more time. Just want to make sure that you got this because this is really important stuff. So Moses wants to make sure that they understand these things. And he now gives sort of this series of sermons uh, in this book is basically what it is, is he's restating the concepts of their history and the law a second time, interspersing warnings and encouragements throughout it. Uh, it, it. What's interesting is the book of Deuteronomy, you're here tonight to study it. And I'll tell you this, that means you're going to understand your New Testament better than other people who aren't interested in studying the book of Deuteronomy because this book from the Old Testament is the most quoted book in the New Testament, which goes to show you something. Uh, Again, first of all, that tells you this. It indicates that many believers, the writers of the New Testament, uh, those who penned scripture, they had a good, solid working knowledge, not only of the Old Testament, but apparently of the book of Deuteronomy. They found the book of Deuteronomy very important because it is the most quoted and referenced book in the New Testament of all the Old Testament scriptures. It also means that the people, obviously, who were receiving the New Testament scriptures must have had a pretty good working knowledge of the book of Deuteronomy because it's always being referred to. And the writers had the idea in their mind, if we refer to this passage from Deuteronomy, the people who are real, oh, yeah, we remember that. We know what that means and what that refers to. It also, the book of Deuteronomy, is the book that Jesus himself quoted more than any other Old Testament book. So, uh, maybe speculation, but it could be that this is Jesus' favorite book in the Bible. 
I don't know. Uh, it was the one he referenced most often. It was the one that he used, again, being God in flesh and having inspired the entire word of God. Remember when Jesus is tempted, Matthew chapter 4, and the accounts we have in the Gospels where the devil brings those temptations to him, and Jesus three times counteracts the devil's temptation with the word of God, and all three times he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy to combat the attacks of the devil against him. So the theme of this book, if it would be something of interest to you, and you'll see it, I think, as we go through it together, the theme of this book is basically obedience to God. So it's a book about obedience, and really you'll notice that tends to be the theme in each of these rather lengthy uh, sermons or series of sermons that Moses gives here. Uh, the word here ends up showing over 70 plus times in this book because that's a key to obedience. God's saying, are you listening? Are you hearing what I'm saying? And God's saying, please hear. Please pay attention. I think a couple of key verses that kind of, if you could find a key verse or two that point that theme, look at over in chapter 4, verse 1. This kind of gives you the sense of the heart of what God was interested in as he inspired this book, giving these series of sermons to Moses. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now, O Israel, notice, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you and you shall not add to the word which I command you nor shall you take it, uh, take from it. So again, notice, God says, listen, why? Uh, to what I'm teaching you that you may observe these things and live. So God says, listen and observe and you'll have a good life. Listen and observe, God says, and you'll have a good life. The, again, indication of obedience. It's also where we get that very climactic and great phrase. Uh, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Chapter 30, verse 19. Let me just read to you. This is where Moses makes this crescendo statement. He says, I call heaven and earth as witness today against you. God says that I have set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So again, this idea, I set before you death and life. I've given you the truth. I've provided my word. I've given you instruction. And God says, but you have to choose now. I've set before you death and life. They're both there. Do these things, ignore God, live this way. God says it's a sure path to self-destruction. If you live this way, it'll lead to life and abundance and good experience. And God says, and I'm, I'm begging you, please choose well, choose life. And, and you know, again, as God brings these things uh, to the forefront of the people's minds, this is, it seems, what he's beckoning throughout this book is, is God saying, look, you're going to win. One man said, you're going to win or you're going to lose by the way that you choose. And I think there's just great truth to that. You're going to win or you're going to lose by the way that you choose. And God's given us free will. He sets before us the opportunity to experience his blessing and a blessed life. And he also sets before us the reality of, look, if, if you want to bring curse upon your life, if you want to curse your own life, then God says both paths are there. 
I will not violate your free will. God's created us with a free will to give us choice because that's what relationship is based on. And God says, I don't want you to be a puppet. Therefore, I need to honor that free will so that it can be genuine relationship. So he sets both before, but he beckons for obedience. So again, it's a book that is based on obedience and the value of obedience. It also shows the incredible detrimental effect when disobedience is what comes to pass instead of obeying the Lord, both as it rehearses the history of Israel as well as the things that God says. So let's look beginning in verse 1 there, sort of give you that backdrop a little bit. It says, these are the words which Moses spoke, notice, to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. So they're still on the eastern side. They haven't crossed over yet. In the plain opposite of Suf, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizba. And then this little interesting insertion given to us, it is 11 days journey, the Bible tells us, from Horeb. Now remember, Horeb is a, a range of mountains and it's in that range of the mountains of, of mountain range of Horeb where Mount Sinai is. So often when you see the Bible refer to Horeb, it's sort of an indirect reference to Mount Sinai. And we know what Mount Sinai was. That was where Moses received the law. He went up into the mountains and so forth. We saw that in our earlier studies. But that's what it's referring to regarding Horeb. That's the, the mountain range. So it's 11 days from Horeb or Sinai by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is what? It's the edge of the promised land. So it's saying that it is a 11-day journey from Mount Sinai, where they first started, to the edge of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. It's, a, it's an 11-day journey, God's telling us here in his word. And it says, verse 3, it came to pass on the 40th year. That's an insight there. <laughs> Supposed to take 11 days. It came to pass on the... It's been 40 years now, the Bible's telling us, in the 11th month, so stretch it as far as you can so you don't get to 41, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them after he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, two of the uh, territories they conquered in the kings in some of their prior military victories. So, Verse 5 picks up really the beginning of this first sermon, but it kind of just sets the stage again that they're on the eastern side waiting to cross over the Jordan to enter into the land. And again, this insertion, the Holy Spirit actually tells us directly now that the journey of the wilderness, which they have been journeying on for about 38 plus years, could have taken 11 days. Literally, that's how long it would take to travel that amount of distance. Now, we need to keep in mind the first year, year and a half or so, when they were at Mount Sinai, they were there initially and God was doing some things. First. They parked there for quite a while. Remember why they were there? Moses received the law. Then he was giving the law to the people. Then remember we saw Moses received all those detailed instructions for the tabernacle, remember, and all the furnishings and how to build it. And then at one point they were to then begin constructing those things. They also received during that interim period where they were kind of just in a holding pattern after they came out of Egypt. 
explanation about the priesthood and all the garments of the priesthood and making all these things. So there was this year, year and a half span of, of just sort of equipping them and getting them ready, understanding all those kind of things. But then when the Lord told them to depart and take off and to leave from Horeb or Sinai to go to Kadesh Barnea, it should have only been 11 days. And it took them another 38 years. And of course, we know why. But again, we see there was indeed a, a legitimate wilderness time. Again, there, there was to be about a, about a two week or so time frame that there could have been. There, you know, there is a legitimacy to a time in the wilderness. And sometimes God does prescribe a wilderness time for us, which is legitimate and necessary. But what we never want to do is have a legitimate time of being tested in the wilderness and going through a desert wilderness season be something that we then prolong from 11 days to 38 years. And we can do that if we fail to obey the Lord. If we Again, that wilderness season many a times is a time of testing and it's a time where God wants to teach us things. And again, keep in mind with God, we've said this before, I'll, I'll restate it for the sake of what we're talking about. With God, you can never fail a test. You'll just keep retaking the test again and again and again for upwards to 38 years if necessary until you pass the test. And God says, look, yeah, there's a legitimacy to times of testing and you'll go through some difficulties and challenges and even Jesus for a time was driven out into the wilderness. And there is something legitimate about a wilderness season, preparation, and God shapes our character and makes our roots go deeper. So again, to be in the wilderness doesn't mean that there's always something wrong. There's a legitimacy to wilderness times, dry seasons and difficulties, but those times are not unnecessarily to be extended because of our failure to obey the Lord and learn the lessons, again, when I get in a difficult time, usually the thing I start praying right away is not, Lord, get me out of this. My first prayer is, Lord, what am I supposed to get out of this? Because as soon as I get what I'm supposed to get out of this, I know you'll get me out of this. <laughs> uh, and, and I want to get out of it just as quick as everybody else does. So, Lord, instead of, I'm just, instead of saying, Lord, get me out of this, it's, Lord, what am I supposed to get out of this? Because as soon as I get it, I just want to, I don't care, I'll, pass, I'll take a D. I don't even need a B or an A. Just, I'll take a D, passing, minimal, I just want to then get out of this and move on. So, rather tragic, 11 days became 38 years. Well, verse 5 now picks up really this first of the series of sermons which goes through the first few chapters as he starts to really just rehearse the history for the younger generation of what God has been doing among the lives of his people in the prior generation. He says, verse 5, on this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, notice Moses began now to explain this law, restating of the law, interspersed with warnings and encouragements, saying, verse 6, the Lord our God spoke to us. So notice he's referring to past tense. He's reflecting back now at this point, back historically to the time after they spent about a year, year and a half at Sinai receiving the law, getting instructions for the tabernacle. Moses says it was that time, after that time of being instructed with the tabernacle, the law, the priesthood, that God spoke to us at Horeb, Mount Sinai, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain, turn 
and take your journey. In other words, the word came, Moses reminds them, when God, after he gave us the law, he clearly instructed us how the law worked through Moses. He gave us the instructions for the tabernacle. He explained the priesthood and the garments and all these things and, and the sacrifices. And, and, and he says that time came when then God said, okay, you have equipped with the information that you need. You've been here for this. And God says, but you've stayed long enough at this mountain. It's time to get moving now. So he says that word came from the Lord. You have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. In other words, you need to get moving toward the thing that God has intended for you. You're not to sit here and dwell here anymore. You are to move on to the thing that God has in front of you that you were always destined to move on to. And you know, I look at that and I think that there are times indeed when our lives where perhaps the Lord says to us, maybe even reading that verse there in verse six conveys something to your heart this evening where perhaps you have just been sitting and dwelling at a particular spot, staring at some massive mountain in front of you that's maybe a, you know, a, a past problem or something that became an obstacle. And, and maybe the Lord's saying, look, you've dwelt long enough at this mountain now. You stood here and stared at this mountain long enough. And it's time to move on now. It's time to stop staring at this mountain. It's time to stop sitting idle. It's time to get up and to get moving. And that word comes from the Lord sometimes where he says, look, you've dwelt here long enough. It's time to get going now. Or maybe he says, look, you're equipped. You're prepared enough. No new information needed. You have all the information that you need. You have what's necessary. You are ready. And, and, it's, and it's time now to begin journeying forward. So he spoke to them, turn and take your journey. An exciting day when they began that wilderness wandering. Unfortunately, it should have taken 11 days and took a lot longer than it took. Take your journey, go to the mountain of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain and the mountains in the lowland in the south and on the seacoast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Again, he's giving reflection of what we just saw recently of the boundaries of the promised land that he ultimately was bringing them to referenced in verse seven. Verse eight, he, God said, see, I've set before you or excuse me, set the land before you, go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to them and their descendants after them. So God says, turn, get moving, head out on your journey. Again, it should have only been about a two-week journey that they were to get to that land. And God says, go in and take possession of what I have given to you, of what I intend for you. Of course, we've talked about how it's a, a, a picture, a type of, of entering into the fullness of the life of the Spirit, all the promises of God that he intends for us in Christ Jesus under our Joshua, who brings us into the promised life of God that he intends for us. For them, they inherited a land. For us, we inherit the spiritual life that we have in Christ. Verse 9, Moses reminds them, I spoke to you at that time, saying... As well, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in the multitude. So even as God spoke to Abraham, part of the promise to Abraham was that his descendants were going to be more numerous than all the grains of sand on the seashore and more than the, all the stars in the heaven that could be counted. And, and God did that. God honors word. The children of Israel, especially during their time in, in, in the season in Egypt, just 
under the greatest pressure and persecution multiplied tremendously to where we know as a congregation they became over 600,000 just men who were 20 years old and above, not counting women, children, so upwards as we've said before to somewhere potentially between 2 to 3 million people. This massive congregation of people journeying through the wilderness. And Moses says, I remember the time when I spoke to you and I began to realize the Lord has multiplied you. And he says, verse 11, may the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he promised you. But he says, how can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints. So, again, probably this is a reference to what happened back in Exodus 18, where as they were beginning to journey through the wilderness, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, you remember the story, uh, was paying a visit, and here's Moses, he's you know, there, and father-in-law's you know, visiting, and he's watching what his son-in-law is doing, and Moses is probably thinking, boy, my father-in-law is going to really be impressed. I mean, I just you know, work hard, taking good care of his daughter. At the end of the day, remember, uh, when he came, Jethro said to him, his father-in-law, uh, what you're doing is not good here. Th this isn't good. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out because what happened? Moses, all by himself, basically trying to take care of all those people, had become reduced to nothing more than a professional problem solver. And all he was doing from sun up to sundown was entertaining every single little tedious grievance and problem, which happens when you have two to three million people living together in a wilderness area. You know, uh, you know Bob's snoring so loud in the tent next to me, and that's really rude. And you know, and, and, and you know, and, and, well, and, she, and this person's doing this, and they, you know. And, and he's listening to all, and, he, and all he's doing from son is entertaining all these problems. And Moses said there came a point where I realized I, I can't do this. I can't bear all this alone. I, I'm not. I'm not helping you. I'm certainly going to just destroy myself. He's, I realized that that I came to a place where I, I needed assistance. His father-in-law said, "Look, Moses, this is not good. You need to find some help. You're not intended to just only be reduced to being a professional problem solver." You're not going to accomplish the things that God intends for you to do. You're going to burn out just with handling this. So the, re the resolution, as we saw, verse 13, he recommended choose wise and understanding and knowledgeable men from among your tribes and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. So Moses makes this recommendation, which the people embrace and they implement. He says, look, we need to find some help to be able to delegate out some of this responsibility. Again, it wasn't that the people's problems didn't matter. It wasn't that Moses didn't care and, and thought, well, you, just stop complaining. Go back and you know, figure it out and you know, g give him something to help him with his snow. I mean, it wasn't that he didn't care about it. He said, but I realized that it was too much for any one person to do. And you know what? When it comes to the work of God, that's always the case. God's work was never intended to be done by one person. It was always intended to be a shared thing, even amongst leadership. That, you know, the idea of, you know, D.L. Moody said, I believe it was Moody said years ago, I would much rather put 10 men to work than do the work of 10 men. And, and this is the idea here. Moses said, look, Choose from among yourselves, notice, men who are wise, understanding, and knowledgeable. 
Not guys with great resumes, guys who are super, just no. Those who are wise. Those who are knowledgeable in the ways of God. Those who understand the will of the Lord and the heart of God. Men from, notice, among your own tribes, and I'll make them leaders and heads over you, some over fifties and hundreds and thousands and so forth. But again, notice the leadership, where was it selected? It was selected from within the people of God themselves. Men from among you, men who are known, men who have proven their reputations and their character is able to be evident, wise and understanding and knowledgeable men. And when the people heard that proposal, they said, hey, that that sounds like a great idea. The thing that you say is good. And, you know, whenever God is in something, there is that confirming testimony of the Holy Spirit. Hey, that that sounds like the Lord. That sounds good. It's a good resolution. Whenever you can propose something that makes two and a half to three million people happy, it's God. It's absolutely God. Verse 15, so I took the heads of your tribes. Notice wise and knowledgeable men. I made them heads over you. Leaders of thousands, some leaders of hundreds, some leaders of fifties, some leaders of tens and officers for your tribe. So notice different responsibilities. Some were able to handle leading a thousand. Some were qualified to lead a hundred. Some were qualified to lead only 10. People received different responsibilities according to their capabilities from the Lord. And verse 16, I commanded then your judges at that time, these different leaders who delegation of responsibility was given to, to hear the different cases. This was the exhortation and instruction Moses gave them as the senior leader. He said, hear the cases between your brethren Notice, judge righteously, that's always important, between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. In other words, use righteous judgment. You know, things like the book of Proverbs where it says, you know, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's a folly and a shame to him. The book of Proverbs says, you know, one man sounds right until his neighbor comes and cross-examines him. There is always two sides to every story. And whenever we entertain a whole lot of one person's grievance and we never take the time to hear that much of the other person's grievance, we can err in our judgment. So he's saying judge righteously. Again, he's going to say no partiality. Be righteous. Be wise in your judgment. Again, this is important for any of us in any role of leadership or helping to mediate or resolve a situation. Judge righteously between a man and his brother, a stranger, whoever it may be. Verse 17, you shall not show partiality, so no favoritism. No catering to a certain person because you want to win their favor or no catering to another person because you feel undue pity for them. Again, partiality can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. Sometimes we can be overly impressed with somebody so we can show partiality. Other times, I think we can overly pity somebody and therefore be overly partial in, in that sense. And, and you know, we can err on either side. So he says, look, we have to guard against this. He tells the leadership, no showing partiality in your judgment. You shall hear, notice, the small as well as the great. So the person who's having a major 50,000 cattle lawsuit is just as important as Bob snoring in the tent next to me <laughs> that's just really keeping me up at night. So this is all important. Hear all the matters, he says. And don't be afraid, great counsel, of any man's presence for the judgment is God. So again, he tells these leaders not only to be righteous in their dealings, to not show partiality, to pay attention to all people's needs, to not dismiss one thing as more important than another. And he gives another wise instruction for any who would be in such a role or serving. He says, look, do not be intimidated by men. Don't be afraid of anybody. 
You know, but instead, he says, realize that the judgment is God's. In other words, the ultimate goal in the judgment really isn't even to pacify the people. It's to please God. That the judgment is, God, what would please you in this situation? Not what would make them like me. Not what would win their approval. Not what would make Bob happy. God, what would please you? The judgment is yours. Lord, what is your judgment on this situation? Lord, I want to set aside my feelings, my bias. And that was important because, as you, again, as these people were hearing all these different cases and grievances, it was important that their greatest desire, especially as leaders, was that they wanted to honor God. And I'll tell you, that is so critical for those who are in places of leadership, that they pee people that not only are wanting to do things righteously and not show partiality, but that their, their greatest desire is not pleasing men or having the approval or the applause, but is, is you know what? What honors God? It's God's judgment that matters most. How would God judge doing this versus doing this? And then he finally said, and whatever is too hard for you, verse 17, any case... You bring that to me and I will hear it. So again, if they couldn't figure out something, maybe they'd take it to the next level of leadership and ultimately certain things that were just extremely difficult, then periodically cases would be brought before Moses, which he could help with that were all the more difficult, that really required maybe his assistance or wisdom to help bring resolution. Verse 18, And I commanded you at that time all things which you should do, so we departed then from Horeb, from Sinai. We went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites as the Lord your God commanded us. And then we came to Kadesh Barnea. The idea is the first time. So they come to the staging area, Kadesh Barnea, the gateway into the promised land the very first time around. And I said to you at that point, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Again, the exhortation, do not fear or be discouraged. So as they came to the staging area, Moses said to the people, hey, this is it. This is what God told us about. We've began pursuing God's will. God's plan is right in front of us. This is the land. This is what God's promised to us. So he says, look, now go in and get it. Walk forward in faith. Step into what God intends. And he says, go up and possess the promises of God and his exhortation. Verse 21, don't be afraid and don't get discouraged. Why? Because that's the natural tendency of human beings is to be afraid to walk in faith and to believe that God's going to do all he said he's going to do. Or to get discouraged and think, mm, yeah, I don't know, but I, and, and to lack the, what's discouragement? It's a lack of courage. To be discouraged, to be lacking courage, to believe that God can do what he said he's going to do. So he says, don't let fear or discouragement hold you back because they are things in our human tendency many times that can keep us from experiencing all of God's best. And again, as they're going into the land physically, it was a literal land for them. Again, as we've talked about, 
entering into the land is a, is a picture, a prefigurement of us entering in and possessing all the promises of God in Christ Jesus, all of the New Testament scriptures and promises of what the Bible says the fullness of the Christian life is. And I think God says to us as well as he brings us to that place, look, now, now begin to possess these things. As you read the Word of God and you read these promises about victory over sin and walking in the Spirit and being able to love and, and actually forgive and, and do some of these things that are a part of the spiritual life to forgive as God forgave us and to be able to speak the gospel to people and to use the gifts of the Spirit that God's given to us and enter into our ministries, God says, don't be afraid now. Don't be discouraged Walk in faith. Go in and believe. If God said it in his word, he's going to do it. That they're real promises. You know, they aren't, you know, well, it might work if you're true. But God said, no, I wrote those because those are things I want you to lay claim to. I want you to go in and to experience these things. And as we read the New Testament, we should read it in a way where we want to be responsive to it and say, Lord, I, I, I want to believe you can do that. I want to believe that's real. And I'm going to appropriate that by faith. I'm going to take a step of faith to live that out because I believe you want me to experience what you're bringing me into as a Christian. Verse 22, he says, and then when he gave that exhortation, of course, we know the story. Every one of you, notice, came near to me and said, let us send men before us. Let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities to which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. They departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol, spied out the land. Remember the 12 spies that went in to check out the territory. And they also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it is a good land, which the Lord our God is giving to us. So, Moses recounts this experience of when they sent the 12 spies into the land, one from each tribe, when they came to the edge. Now, the book of Deuteronomy here gives us a very interesting insight, verse 22. Moses clearly says, as he's reiterating this experience to the younger generation, he says, when we came to the land that God promised to us, I said, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. This is what God has planned for us and promised to us and given to us just go get it. Just go walk in by faith and take it. God's already given it to you. Just go take possession of it. And Moses said, every one of you came to you and said, well, first let us send some men to go check out the land and let them bring word back to us. Now, notice, the sending of the spies into the land, it seems very logical. It looked like just kind of like a good strategic, yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, that's just good, you know, go in, check out the land, search it out, get some ideas so we can, it, it's, on the surface, it sounds like a very logical idea. The reality was it ultimately became a very bad problem because they did that. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 22, they say, let us send men, let them, notice, let them search it out and bring back word to us about the land. It's almost as if I can sense that God's saying, wait a minute, why do you need the word of men? You already had the word of God. I already spied out the land. Who do you think picked it out for you? And God's saying, well, what do you need to spy it out for? I already went and spied it out for you. 
I know everybody who's in there. I know the way that you're going to go. All you've got to do is just follow the leading of my presence. I'll tell you who to fight first and where to go and when to do this. And, but again, what is it? So oftentimes, as a lack of faith and a step towards disobedience is what it is, we're more interested in the word of men than we are the word of God. And we, we want the word of men. And God says, what do you need the word of men for? And, and sometimes we can make it sound really logical and really responsible and it almost sounds on the surface like, hey, that's a really good idea. Go send in the... But we know what happens, right? When they send the spies in. They come back and they say, well, they, hey, nevertheless, they say, it's a good land the Lord is giving to us, verse 25. In other words, like, that's a shocker. <laughs> what, you get it? It's magic. It's just like God said. Can you believe it? it as if somehow God was going to play a prank on them? They were going to go in there. God said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's good. As if they were going to come back and say, boy, you know, God is a real jokester. It's a good thing we checked that out for you. You don't want to check. I mean, you don't want to trust God. I mean, good thing you sent us 12 in. Because, boy, God would have really pulled the wool over our eyes. I mean, that place was horrible. They came back and said, it's a really good land. They had, remember, took, to carry the grapes, took two guys carrying a pole just to carry a cluster full of grapes from the valley. So it's a really good land that God is giving to us. The worst word in the Bible oftentimes, verse 26, nevertheless. Nevertheless, look what he says. You would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God and complained in your tent. So he doesn't say you could not go in. God's very clear. Moses, again, I guess when you get 120 years old, you don't care what people think anymore. <laughs> he just, he just, straight, you know, I mean, some of you who are older than I am, you just, I, I noticed that as, you know, I'm noticing my own life and hanging around those older than me. You just, when you get older, it's just like, I, I'm just not going to polish it up. This is just the truth, all right? Just, just, that's not, that's not mince words here. Just, you would not go in. You're rebellious. You just rebelled, Moses. I mean, just this is his farewell address. He's thinking, I'm going to die in 30 days anyway. Just send me home sooner. <laughs> He's probably got that at heart at this point. You know, pre kill me the first sermon. I won't preach the other four afterwards. The book of Deuteronomy would have been shorter. But uh, he says, nevertheless, you would not go up, remember, because of the report that came back of the 10 spies who were 10 of the 12, all saying, oh, there are giants there. And, this. and he says, you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Again, showing this was not a good idea, really, the spy thing. Because they came back and they discouraged and they spoke things and all, talked about all the obstacles. Of course there was obstacles. God knew there was obstacles. But they pointed out the obstacles and they inflated the obstacles and they exaggerated how hard and horrible it was going to be and it just deflated the faith of the people and it made them question God and question God's will and therefore it led to a horrible rebellion that led to tremendous consequences that lasted four decades because they rebelled against God's word, they rebelled against God's command and they did not do what God had clearly told them to do because of unbelief and this becomes a picture all throughout the New Testament of what is called the rebellion of just rebelling and hardening a heart against the voice of God what do they also do verse 27 he says not only did you not go in and rebel but he says when this all happened you complained in your tents again isn't it interesting again the Holy Spirit they complained but where did they complain in their tents in their tents you know it just and somehow, you know, it's interesting. 
especially as married people, and just as we somehow justify, it's okay to complain if you're only doing it in your tent. You don't want to do it in the tent meeting of God's people because then you might not be perceived as spiritual or you might be looked at as rebellious. But it's okay to say to your spouse, can you believe, I mean, can you, be, and, and, and it's okay to do that. And I don't think we should. And can you believe they're doing that? And, and, and it's amazing how we justify that it's okay to do certain things in our tents, but see what started in their tents ultimately transitioned out and became a public, corporate, contagious complain fest where they ultimately just rebelled against God. And I think it's just a good reminder. Look, God sees what goes on in our tents even as he does among the grouping of God's people collectively. And God cares about that. Just And truth of the matter is, look, Let's be very candid. Our spiritual life begins and is most sincerely proved out in what happens in our tent at home because God still sees that and God still hears that and he hears those conversations the same way he hears the conversations that happen right here in a corporate worship meeting when we're all playing church together sometimes. God hears that as well. God heard what they were doing. God heard them complaining in their tents and it was just as wrong. And what did they say? Verse 27. We'll talk about a sad indictment. They said, as they're complaining, here's what they were complaining. Because the Lord hates us. I bet you never said that before. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, here they are, and they actually go so far as to indict the goodness of God to say, God, God hates us. You see, can you believe... He did all this, brought us, did that whole Egypt thing, all that deliverance, brought us through the Red Sea, showed off his power, did all this stuff to bring us out here so that nobody would catch him so he could just kill us right here in this wilderness. He hates us, that's it. He just, God said, go out there on the edge of that branch a little further. And then he told the angels, watch this. Oh, yeah, I, I hate them. They have no idea. They think I love them. But they have no idea how much I hate them. I mean, do you see how really ludicrous the mindset is? But be very honest, when we go through hardships or difficulties, or we, like them, come to this place called Mara when we're thirsty and the water's really kind of bitter and we're going, man, I'm thirsty, and this is really bitter, and this stinks, or th this is hard, and, and we face the cruel and terrible aspects of the wilderness, and what do we instantly do? We instantly somehow interpret that as God doesn't love us. Worse, God hates me. He's trying to ruin my life. He doesn't even care. I mean, we just swing so far off track as we let our mind and our emotions start to go to play. That's why the Bible says we have to learn how to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ so that we don't wrongly indict God, so that we don't wrongly complain not just about what people are doing, but complain about how God's taken care of us and that somehow God isn't aware of our situation or he's overlooked it or worse yet, that he purposely plotted these harmful things. So verse 28, they said, where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. And again, notice 10 people discouraged the hearts of an entire congregation. A massive congregation, too. Don't tell me that complaining, criticism, looking negatively upon some work of God, and, and ten people, ten 
people saying, oh, but there's this obstacle and that might happen or it'll never work. And ten people dissuaded an entire congregation from following God and discouraged the hearts of the people saying, the people are greater and taller and the cities are great and fortified up to heaven. That's a little exaggeration, would you agree? (laughs) Well, the walls, did you see them? I mean, the walls were literally to heaven. God put the last three rows of bricks on there so high. All the way up to heaven, the walls were... Again, what is this? This is humanity looking at obstacles and what does our humanity do? We always exaggerate. Yes, there are legitimate obstacles. I'm not trying to be uh, unsensitive and say that life doesn't have obstacles and challenges, but it's amazing how in unbelief and in our humanity we so exaggerate things to be so much bigger than what they really are. And again, the people are great, fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we've seen the sons of the Anakim. And what did Moses do? He said, then I said to you, do not be terrified of them or afraid of them. Notice verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way in which you went until you came to this place. So again, Moses doesn't say, you know what, yeah, those obstacles are overwhelming. He says those obstacles are legitimate. But right away he says, but the greatness of those obstacles is nothing in comparison to how great and powerful God is. And he instantly just puts their eyes back on the Lord. I mean, you couldn't say it clearer than what he says there. Do not be afraid. The Lord is going to go before you. He'll fight for you. According to all that, notice, he did for you. In other words, he's got a really good track record. Think of all he's done for you. He's got a good track record, Moses is saying. And in the wilderness, he said, he carried you as a man carries his son. He pictures God in this tender way of like a loving parent who just will will pick up their exhausted, weak child and just and carry him so that they don't have to keep walking. And he says that this is what God is like. And, you know, what a wonderful thing that he's trying to give them this encouragement. And, you know, tonight, I, I don't know what you're facing or, or what's in front of you. And, and maybe there are legitimate obstacles. And, and maybe the enemy has been toying with your mind just like he toys with my mind. It makes me to want to get discouraged and distracted and view things wrongly. And, and look, problems are problems. Problems are legitimate. They're not always going to go away. But problems are not obstacles that God can't overcome. The presence of a problem does not mean something good can't come to pass, though. What it means is God may say, you're going to have to let me fight that for you. You're going to have to let me, just like I've carried you this whole way long, just carry you through this. And you're going to have to let me show you my power and my strength and let me do for you what I'm alone able to do. Well, let's stand together. Our time's a